1: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Hi, welcome to episode
2: 111 of the Christian Dog Podcast. I'm Ms. Dr. Asmosh Samadani. And before we actually did talking, and I'll let Dr. Zanadani introduce herself, I would like to first thank my sponsor, HeadCheck Health. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple powerful technology. To organizations like the Canadian Football League, Trek Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck Health To improve communication and optimize care, visit headshahealth.com for more. And also, I would like just, I'd be remiss not to remind you to please follow me on social media at concussion talk on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, And I'm good boss, just concussion concussion talk. And, uh, And follow me and subscribe, rate, and view, on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, and we're in a podcast, Podbean, or video podcast. But uh, so I'd uh, like the, there's introduce uh, Dr. Osman Samadani, and I really hope, I asked you before you started recording, if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but I want to make sure that I, you obviously yeah. know say it better than I do. But uh, um, the, the, the brief intro that I have for you now, because I've because your your assistant had a long one. You have a lot of accolades for your robust research in, in brain injury and your neurosurgery accolades as well. But uh, Dr. Sanadani is a neurosurgeon and brain injury research brain injury researcher at the University of Minnesota. She's an associate professor in the Department of Bioinformatics, Bioinformatics and Computational Biology at the University of Minnesota with the Graduate Faculty Appointment in Neuroscience. She's also attending neurosurgeon at the Minneapolis Veterans Administration Medical Center and founder of the neurodiagnostic startup, Oculogica, Oculogica which we'll get into more now, but more after Dr. Samadani introduces herself. So I'm sure, I know I didn't do you justice and all the accolades you've received, but um, please just introduce yourself further, just please.
3: No, you, you absolutely nailed it. That's exactly who I am. I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm a brain injury researcher. I've been doing both uh, for about, uh, if you include residency, 21 years. Uh, post-residency, it's 14 years, 15 years um, uh, at this point. And uh, I, I work at the University of Minnesota on my research. I do my research at the, based out of the, the Minneapolis VA uh, healthcare system. And then I also am in private practice as a neurosurgeon. So I, I directly take care of patients, uh, and I, I continue to work on mostly objective measures for brain injury, but also okay. um, algorithmic treatments for brain injury and spinal cord injury.
2: Well, that, that's very appropriate. But Actually, just by happenstance, that uh, last week we had a Dr. Adrian Cohen from Australia and talk about again another objective EEG, probably EEG diagnostic of of, of, a, of a concussion and brain injury. And uh, that was also his, his big thing was being, it's objective and, uh, and same with which I'll oh, ask before I started, before I should have mentioned earlier, that I, I would encourage anyone to check out Dr. Dani's Ted Talk, Ted Med Talk, whatever they, the correct way to say it, Ted Med or Ted Talk. But this, the whole, this brain injury, this this archeological you know, and uh, ocular motility, eye movement, and uh, how it apply, impl- applies to a brain injury diagnosis so, or a concussion diagnosis. So if you could please just guess, guess just the, the basics of here, you explain to that doc, how you, how you got gotten it, how you found this, started this, why you started this company and your research sure. in the brain injury.
3: So, so let me go back to the very beginning. Um, back in 2010, I was setting up my, my um, clinical practice and my research And we were doing a clinical trial to look at an intervention that would improve outcomes after brain injury. And we needed an outcome measure. And we came up with the idea of using eye tracking. And our hypothesis was that people who were brain injured would not be able to watch TV um, as well as someone who was not brain injured. So in other words, they wouldn't be able to follow activity on a computer screen or a viewing monitor. Um, And so so that was the underlying premise of our our whole idea. And so we came up with an eye-tracking algorithm. And then what we found, and this was somewhat, you know, it was was not unexpected because it makes sense. But at the time, it was sort of a, a a little bit of a big deal because no one had ever quantitated it. What we found was that, Um, people who are brain injured are not capable of moving their eyes in the same way as people who are not brain injured. And what happens is, is that they have restrictions in not only movement, but also in coordination. And particularly those restrictions in coordination are something that we can detect when we map the pupil position over time. And so that's what we're doing. So we're, we, we look at the Cartesian coordinates, you know, X, Y. It's sort yeah. of that third grade math that we, we yeah. all remember, you know, when you plot yeah. out X, Y. Um, so we look at the Cartesian coordinates of the pupils over time in people who are injured versus not injured. And we see differences. And, and where we see those differences are in specific pathways. So the pathways in the brain that coordinate horizontal movement or that coordinate vertical movement. And the interesting thing is that there are different pathways in the brain that coordinate movements, depending on which direction you're moving your eyes in. So if you're moving your eyes up, it's a different set of pathways. And if you're moving your eyes down, it's a different set. And yeah. so we can, we can actually map where in the brain the injury has occurred by looking at the metrics that are disrupted um, during the eye tracking.
0: Right. And so
3: There's- we we do this by mapping pupil position over 220 seconds. Uh, so wow. we we measure the pupil position at 500 times per second over 220 seconds, and then that gives us some sense of how well a person is capable of moving their eyes, and and that tells us a lot about brain injury.
2: So so why why is it why two minutes well two minutes and forty seconds is two twenty seconds. So why is it? Well, three minutes, sorry, three minutes and 40 seconds. So why is it, why that time, just why is that time so important?
3: Well, actually it's not. We can we can do it in much less, <laughs> um, but that's what we started with in, in our research. And oh, then exactly. we validated our data set and that's what we submitted to the FDA. So that's what we're FDA cleared for. Oh, okay. um, we are working on reducing it. So, right. you know, Oceologica will eventually get it down to much less time because it's possible to tell a lot about pupil movement. Um, the more you collect data, the more you can be sure that something you're seeing is not an artifact. So, right. yeah. you know, having that extra buffer of time does give us some confidence in our results.
2: Because actually I was uh, re- obviously researching a bit before this, I talked about uh, and also just, just talking about your as I mentioned very briefly, your robust range of research, which is, I mean, you've been you've been uh, noted in in uh, your research has been noted in New York Times, Wired, and many others of the publications. And uh, and one thing one of the ones I actually read, not the whole thing, but I read the the abstract and the draw and the some of the methods and the conclusions of your of your own paper about which is. Kind of very very appropriate to me uh, cranial nerves three and three and six about because I I have a double vision which is also known as diplopia and yep. uh, and uh, you wrote a paper about that and uh, this is uh, this maybe very greedy people who don't want to learn don't want to know about my specific brain injuries from my specific problem that uh, just so why is I've been told I've been told I may have a I'm mad but I've been told by people because I'm uh, sorry. Standardization that they uh, help the students of med school here in in Newfoundland in St. John's Newfoundland Canada, and uh, and they do the then always well, you said in your TikTok the finger thing the eye tracking with their finger and uh, yeah and so they do that and it, and the doctor know that have like like they you know they they also quiz the students as they're there but the uh, third and third and third and sixth cranial nerve palsy. And uh, because my eyes don't track well, well so I'm just explain what what that is, like why nerve 36. twenty six.
3: So, um, well, let me let me back up just a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, the way the brain works is that we have these nerves that come out of the the skull base, um, and they they exit from the the like the the bottom side of the brain, and there are twelve of them. And they control functions that are um, sort of the five senses, I would say, and then everything that goes to the head, so the face and the head. Um, and so, there, like I said, there are 12 of them. The first one is for smell. Um, the second one is vision, so that's cranial nerve two. Three, four, and six are all involved in moving the pupil, and co- um, they also they have nuclei that share information so that they coordinate pupil movement. And then cranial nerve five is uh, sensation to your face, uh, and it's it's uh, also some motor movement in your your muscles. Cranial nerves. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, And so you know people have disruption of that. Um, And then seven is movement to the face. Eight is hearing and balance. You know, so basically our technology assesses um, cranial nerves two through seven because what we do is we measure the Pupil reflex, which is cranial nerves two and three. So we look at, you know, are your, when, when a light comes in front of your eyes, do both of your pupils constrict um, at the same rate and at the same speed? Because um, that, that's something that's mediated by cranial nerves two and three. Then we also assess, um, you know, three, four, and six um, uh, are responsible for moving the pupil. And so because we're looking at pupil movement, we get three, four, and six. And then finally we get five and seven because we also measure blink. So um, five is sensation to the cornea, which is the surface of the eye. uh, And seven is your ability to to close your your eyelid. Um, And so when someone has disruption of that pathway, they may have an an alteration in how quickly or how frequently they blink. And and it also um, will assess whether the blinks are symmetric. Um, so, cause you know, both eyes should be doing things at the same time. Yes. So actually our technology of, you know, of the 12 cranial nerves, it assesses essentially almost half of them really. Um, you know, yeah. cause we get two, three, yeah. three, four, yeah. six, and then five and seven. Yeah. So, um, so, so we get a, we get a good chunk of the cranial nerves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and what, what's important about that is that each of these nerves, um, it not only shares information with the other nerves in the brainstem, but also gets uh, information from other parts of the brain through large pathways and networks. So um, for example, you know, something like uh, vision, um, you, know, you, you, you choose where you look, right? But you don't choose the fact that your eye movements are coordinated when you look in that particular direction. That's something that ha- happens in your brainstem. And when something happens in your brainstem, you don't think about it. There's no cortical input, right? Um, and what that means is that this is not something that you can fake. You know, you can't pretend that your eyes are capable of moving together when they're not, um, nor can you pretend that your eyes are incapable of moving together when they are. Right. Um, so, so that is good because it can completely eliminates the possibility Of someone trying to malinger or someone trying to um, pretend that they're well when they are not not well. Um, So, and then the other part of this is is that multiple pathways from cortical areas also feed in to these to these cranial nerves. So things like balance, um, you know, obviously balance is a complex function. You, you know, when you're, when you're balancing on a balance beam or when you're walking, you don't, you don't necessarily think about it uh, all the time. You think about it sometimes, right? If you were balancing on a tightrope or a balance beam, you'd be thinking about it. Oh, if yeah. You were just, yeah. If you were just walking across the room, you wouldn't think about it. And mm-hmm. what happens is, is you get cues. You get cues from your, your ears where you have your vestibular apparatus. You get cues from your eyes um, that, you know, tell you about what the room is doing and, and all of those cues feed into pathways. And those pathways are complex. They go through things like the cerebellum, um, where, you know, sort of the information is all put together and that's what keeps you upright. And when someone has a brain injury, some of those pathways can be disrupted and we can detect the ones that impact, you know, basically cranial nerves two through seven. Yeah. Um so so that's that's how our technology works.
2: Because I was actually gonna ask you more about the uh it's called iobox is the uh system yeah. tool. Um and I was gonna ask you why be you already answered why the why no why is no baseline testing necessarily needed needed for this, but if you can just repeat what you said like tell why yeah. why no baseline testing is needed for this.
3: So so we don't um we don't have have to have baseline testing because the vast majority of people who are walking around in the world have eye movements that are coordinated at baseline.
0: Right. Um,
3: you would be an exception because yes. you had a prior brain injury yes. and your eye movements are not coordinated. No. Um, but I will tell you this, there's a difference in disruption between people who are acutely injured, like who just got injured you know, yesterday yeah. versus people who are chronically injured. So you're what we call chronically injured because you were right. injured a long time ago.
2: Yeah. So, oh, so yeah.
3: different metrics would be disrupted in those types of people.
2: And it, it, it I guess the I-box, why it's called box it says there's a box score of uh, metrics, but uh, is that is that correct? Is what? that why it's called box I-box? Well, when, <laughs> and also what are Actually, the box scores?
3: Yeah. Well, it, it we named it I. Box, basically, um, box stands for brain injury associated ocular motility, oh. but. um capitalized. It's all capitalize. so
2: yes, i Yeah, sure.
3: well, it's okay. Um, but the, the eyes are moving sort of in a box type pattern during the assessment. Yes. So it, it looks a little bit like a box. Right. And that's why we, we call it eye box. Um, but the, I mean, essentially, you could you could do eye tracking. Even with natural stimuli, and you'd still be able to figure out if someone's disrupted, it's just a lot easier when you use a provocative stimulus that that sort of asks the pupils to move in a particular pattern.
2: So, so this, is, so I mean, again, I'm being a bit greedy, selfish here, but again, back to the, the and my, well, my, uh, my personal play but the yeah. So, how does that? As if, if I'm watching, if I'm watching, say, uh, soccer game on TV, well, how do my my eyes move differently than you yours would say?
3: Be- because the pathways that coordinate your eye movements are disrupted, and. That's why you've you've had the problems that you've had, right. and you know the it may in your particular case my guess is it's probably not the nerve that was injured it's probably the nucleus in the brainstem that feeds the nerve that was injured. Um, oh, yeah. it, I, I mean I haven't seen your images so yeah. I don't know exactly yeah. what was injured, but more frequently when someone has disruption of more than one cranial nerve like you do. Yeah. It's because the nucleus that that creates those nerves that you know that sort of that is the basis for where those nerves come from in the brainstem is disrupted, and uh, and and that that usually is what happens.
2: Right, right. So yeah, because so they know because I they know they're having well, they were having problems. <laughs> I would have problems with my figuring out what was wrong with my eyes and why they weren't coordinating, and so that was another challenge. And of course, I was injured in 3 when this was obviously not as ranger is not it's not really one not one understood now is bit a lot better now than it was in three and uh but you you started you started I don't to go back to how long you've been doing Ranger research and 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 practicing nursery but uh you you said you were you were saying you, you're uh you can't put these with the of the so this eye movement, why is a good diagnostic works because you're researching just ways to diagnose concussion or mind's ways to diagnose brain injury, boys. That's what your your study was.
3: Well, no, when when we originally invented this technology, we were planning on using it as an outcome measure for a okay. clinical trial yeah. to see if an intervention improved outcomes after brain injury, okay. and then we realized that it was such a good assessor of brain injury that it would be useful for many different contexts. So, and actually it is, we are currently FDA cleared for aid in the diagnosis of concussion, but because what we are is a monitor of cranial nerves two through seven, there's potential for other applications. So for example, one, one classic example, that's really relevant right now is long COVID. Mm. Um, We know that the COVID virus has direct neurological effect. It it infects neurons. It gets into neurons and it disrupts the function. So many many people who have COVID have disruption of specific cranial nerves. Most classically, cranial nerve one because they don't have any smell. Um, right. You know, they don't have taste. Okay. Is that the same
2: same nerve
3: or is that? No, that's a a different cranial nerve. But, you know, basically they don't have um, the same, like some patients have tinnitus, which is, you know, cranial nerve eight. Some patients um, do have ocular motility dysfunction, which is not as common with long COVID as, you know, some of the other cranial nerve palsies. But we, we know that, um, you know, so here's another neurologic disorder that potentially could be assessed with with box technology. Uh-huh. Um, w- there are there are others. So multiple sclerosis classically affects, um, you know, causes optic neuritis, affects cranial nerve, too. Um, so we could we can pick that up with with eye tracking, uh, you know, start. so there there are a variety of disorders. That we potentially have application for, we've just focused on brain injury because that's where the need is greatest right now. Yes. Um, you know we could also be used, for example, for screening for stroke, because you know we can the stroke will affect yeah. um, some many of the cranial nerves. Yeah. Um, e- essentially, anything that that causes impairment of central nervous system function um, might be detectable by our technology. Uh, because so many different pathways feed into the cranial nerves that we can assess.
2: And oh, James, obviously, there's a lot of applications for this. And just COVID, obviously, you can't just use it to diagnose something that's not clear for it. But I mean, this long long COVID and, and MS and stroke all sounds like they're very closely related to, well, I'm not sure what long COVID, I, I don't know much about long COVID, but. Uh, I've heard a lot about it, but, um, but yeah. Um. Also, uh, could you just go a bit more in depth about why? Like, what do you said the eye? eye eyes move in a box. That's why it's called what's called eye boxes of the brain injury ocular. What's the brain injury, you, brain injury?
3: Brain injury associated ocular motility dysfunction.
2: Injury associated ocular motility dysfunction. but um, if you but the eyes move in a box. So what? What? What exactly do the eyes do? Like why? How do you get these things to how does your eye box work? Sorry, nitty gritty, which is on your, on your website, but of course I got you, but, uh, how but otherwise, how would you describe how it works?
3: Um, well, basically what I would say is it's a camera that looks at the pupils and then it measures the pupil position. And uh, we use time as the sort of the, the x-axis. So, um, you know, we measure the pupil position over time, while a person views a monitor. And on that monitor, we play videos. So um, we can use music videos, we can use sports videos, we use a lot of Disney cartoons, um, basically anything that the person wants to watch. Um, You know, for for athletes, we use a lot of um, football and sports. Yeah. Um, and what happens is, is the, the video, the music video or whatever it is, it plays inside an aperture and the aperture moves around a screen. Uh, so it's completely non-invasive. It's basically like watching TV. So for little kids, it's very, very feasible. Um, you know, often you have tests, neurologic tests that little kids don't want to participate in because, you know, they don't necessarily want to sit still for a long time but getting a kid to watch cartoons for 220 seconds is actually pretty easy yes, a, it's a bit, um, yeah yeah you know what, what's interesting is is when we first invented the technology uh i brought my nieces and nephews in to try it out and mm-hmm. the very youngest we ever eye tracked anybody was at 11 months um and this was my nephew and uh, and, you know, he was he was basically not allowed to watch much TV at home. So not a lot of screen time. No. And, and so when he got a chance to watch a Disney cartoon, um, you know, he was he was pretty transfixed. Yeah. Um, so it was it was very easy to eye track him. Uh, you know, we don't we, we are not FDA cleared down to 11 months. We are FDA cleared from four years on. Uh, but uh, is that I
2: because th- of, is that, is that because of just the way the FDA does that? The, the special do have, that we have to,
3: yeah we'd have to present data so we, we only have data going down to four years old right. um, we we are collecting data on younger. And I think it would be interesting before the age of one, some children still have, you know, they're still sort of myelinating all their nerve roots. And yeah. and so they haven't fully developed all of their coordinate coordinating pathways yet. And this is why sometimes when you see a newborn, you know, it looks like almost like their eyes aren't completely you know, focused or fixed or coordinated because they're um, not. Is that why? Because they're not. Okay. And then, as as they develop, most children are able to fix a gaze pretty strongly exactly by about three four months. Oh, yeah. Is that
2: why they get kids at that age, like really, when they stare, they have the lungs they have a hard stare. Yeah. they're just yeah. kind of piercing, kind of inadvertently. Yeah.
3: They're just absorbing things. Yeah. Um, So, so, you know, I think it would be interesting to, to look at that age group, you know, the very young age group with eye tracking, but uh, you know, I, I would expect that it it might be more technically challenging because their heads are smaller and, you know, they can't really sit up and, um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting idea um, because one could probably figure out exactly when their eye movements do become coordinated. Um, My guess is it's probably before age one for most kids. Because by then they're running around and they're, you know, they're, they're able to balance, they're able to do all the skills that um, are developed in conjunction with, with eye movements. Um, so, so, so we are FDA cleared down to age four, but it's possible to eye track kids even younger. And the, the bottom line is that what I'm saying is this is an easy test. Yeah. Um, it's, it's non-invasive. A, a, a tiny little kid can do it. Uh, It doesn't require education. It doesn't require literacy. It doesn't require, you know, a cultural awareness of anything. Um, It's, you know, it's completely agnostic to to language or socioeconomic status. And that, in a a sense, makes it an equitable test because you you want to have a test that doesn't require someone to have a command of the English language, for example because you know they may be uh, uh, you know you
2: know the yeah. planet what T is and with residents and stuff like that like so.
3: yeah well they you know you may have an educated person who speaks multiple languages but they're not good at English and then you give them a test in English and they don't do well yeah so just... you know when when people are assessing neurologic function there's a tendency to ask patients to do volitional tasks right? Balance on one foot, right? That's a volitional task. And the problem with volitional tasks is you can choose how well you want to balance, right? You can choose to throw yourself off balance because you have that capacity, right? So Mm -hmm. with any volitional task, it's harder to assess neurologic function.
2: I guess it also depends on your mood that day. If you're having a bad day or thinking of it, think of something else you can't balance as well.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, anger, hunger, um, you know, fatigue, uh, stress, anxiety, you know, all of these things can affect tests of neurologic function if those tests are volitional. So we want to have a test that is, you know, sort of as passive as possible. And, you know, just putting a, a screen in front of someone, their eyes almost follow it automatically. And so so that, that's the ideal scenario is where you, you don't have to force someone or ask them to do something, but they do it sort of passively and you know, automatically. And, and that increases validity of the test um, because it enables you to, to really assess things. You know, w- when I say that we have a stimulus that moves around the screen and it plays videos, it plays movies, yeah. um, we can actually also assess you even if you don't follow the stimulus suppose right. you you uh, we've had patients who do this who who deliberately choose to you know look somewhere else right. but even when they do that their eye movements are coordinated oh. you know so so we can tell if they're if they're trying to malinger or not because they still have coordinated eye movements or mm-hmm. discoordinated eye movements whatever the case
2: may be so the, the data tells you how the third eyes are obviously just by just by looking at the eye you can see oh this person's trying to move your eyes away or whatever but as yeah. a, a general question i know you said in your ted doc your ted med doc however yeah. you want to say that um that this is between two or 92 or not that may have been just a well well put together a little analogy or analogy but anyway way to say it but uh but uh, so is there like there's so there's a part of your of your when your eyes your eyes coronet, this is a, obviously a more general question but uh there's an age, when it's just, does after a certain age, you just say, it's not going to change much or, not, or just, you know, if someone's- well, So, a pretty, pretty so we are,
3: yeah, we are currently FDA cleared for aid in the diagnosis of brain injury or aid in the diagnosis of concussion, I should say, uh, up to age 65. Um, yeah. And the reason that we stopped there is that we don't have data for older patients. Right. Um, what happens with older patients is that other factors start to- um, start to go in. And when I, when I say other factors, I mean, glaucoma the, like, well, yeah, glaucoma, definitely. But, um, you know, so uh, ocular dysfunction in general, but also, um, you know, the, the effect of age, age-related, you know, mild cognitive impairment, um, you know, dementia, other causes. And we have noticed that there are differences in eye movement tracking between people who are demented versus not demented, um, but we haven't published on that yet. And that's, that's definitely something that we're seeing at the extremes of age. And so therefore we didn't submit uh, you know, data on concussion in that patient population. Uh, what happens in, in the older patient population with brain injury is the older you get, the harder it is to recover from a brain injury. Yeah. You know, a, a very trivial injury in a 70, 80 or 90 year old is a big deal. When, yeah, you know, yeah. if, if the same, you know, like if you just bump your head at the age of 80 or 90, you can have a bleed on the surface of your brain and right. it can be devastating. Yeah. Um, you know, that same bump to the head in a 10 year old kid might not even be noticed. You know, yeah. um, there, there are huge differences in capacity for recovery at older ages. And it's, it's almost as if, you know, a trivial injury is, is, so much more of a cataclysmic event at that age group that it would be harder for us to say that an injury is mild um, when someone ha- sustains an injury in that age group, you know, relative to a younger person. Right. Um, I, I, I don't really love the terms mild, moderate, and severe to describe brain injury yeah. because I yeah. feel like they, they don't do an adequate job of classifying the nature of the problem someone can have a a quote unquote mild brain injury and they have lifelong affliction. Um, You know, they're, it, it disrupts their function for years. It keeps them from having a job. It keeps them from having, you know, meaningful relationships. It can lead to addiction. It can, it can create a death spiral. And, you know, when, you know, it increases your risk for suicidality. So literally a death spiral. And you know, so that's why I don't love the term mild traumatic brain injury. I think it's a bit of a misnomer.
2: And so sorry, this I was gonna give you a chance to talk more about you, it. but it's one, it's one question, one more question about this day. You say you don't like the term mild traumatic brain injury. So PCS or some people say post-concussion syndrome, but now it's also okay. persistent concussion syndrome persistent yeah. question symptoms. So which one do you like, do you have a preference to those terms or do you haven't thought that much?
3: Well, I'm, I use them. I use all of those terms because that's what is commonly yeah. accepted in the vernacular of our, yeah. our field.
0: Exactly. But
3: uh, I, I feel as if sometimes we need to do a better job of classifying the physiology of brain injury. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that the tricky thing about brain injury is is it's a bit like a salad it contains multiple ingredients so there might be cortical spreading depolarizations there yeah. might be you know endocrine dysfunction there might be diffuse axonal injury um you know there might be multiple different pathophysiologies that are all occurring in the same person but to different extents and we need to be able to classify the nature of injury so just like we do with brain tumors or you know cancer of any any sort yeah. is we we classify it from a molecular perspective yeah. and then we figure yeah. out exactly what's wrong and we treat the problem and that's what we need to do with brain injury and we're we're getting closer to being able to yeah. do that when, now, when I've, I've,
2: noticed, I've noticed much improvement in the past both 18 years since i've had my injury but uh, especially yeah. the last 10 years been just remarkable improvement and diagnosis yeah. diagnosis and treatment so yeah
3: yeah so that that's that's necessary because once we can once we can do that, um, it'll it'll be a lot easier,
2: right? And that will, that's will I completely agree. And uh, and of course, I uh, just want to give you a chance now to talk more about oculology and like well, and What what exactly is it? And and what and what did you what did you guys invent that led you to develop this, to create to found this company?
3: Yeah. So when I when I first realized that we had an eye tracking technology that informed regarding, um, you know, brain function, my my plan was initially to make it free and you know sort of put it on on an open access platform, and anybody could use it and and assess themselves. Right. right. Um, the problem with that is that that it would actually be difficult to use. Because if hospitals cannot bill for it, then they're not going to utilize it. You know, if a service is free for a hospital, they're not going to be able to bill a patient for it. And therefore, they're not going to, to use the technology. So I realized that, unfortunately, my plan to give it away for free was not, was not the best way to, to get the technology incorporated into modern medical care. In order to get the technology to be part of the the care arsenal in the medical field, they have to be able to bill for it. And so my first thought was, oh, we should license it. But, you know, the reality is, is that there aren't very many companies at that time, at least, that were interested in licensing a technology when there are no treatments for the pathology that it diagnoses right. because, yeah. because, you know, there's no treatment for concussion, mm-hmm. you know, Medtronic or Integra or Stryker, none of them are going to jump on a diagnostic Just when there's, there. there's yeah. no therapeutic link to it. Right. And so then we realized that what we had to do was we had to start a company and the the goal of the company would be to change the way we diagnose and define brain injury so that we can tailor therapeutics um and you know very i think that it, it's the harder road but it's the right thing to do because the only way we can develop therapeutics for brain injury is if we can diagnose it in the first place and so that was the reason that we started the company
2: i think this actually it's very appropriate because uh you're just saying you started to come because of this research the outcome you're studying you were doing a study on outcomes for brain injury and uh the company was created because they wanted to do to, uh, the outcomes. So that's the only reason they started the, they started the company was the outcome to get this this technology to uh, to to anybody who will take it. They started help me first. But um, so where can people find this? Find, find out more about Octologia? Where um, where are you? Where are you Where are, you at, where, are you at, where and where's your website? Where can people find information?
3: Yeah, so we are in, I think, about a third of the states in the United States. Um, We've got devices in, you know, most big cities. Um, You know, basically, if you are interested in finding a practitioner who will offer the the testing, you know, you can use the contact us feature on our website and uh, and we'll put you in touch with someone who has an iBox. Most of the devices are in uh, physician offices. Uh, they're not yet in emergency rooms, but, uh, they're in individual, either neurologists, um, rehab doctors, people who treat brain injury. Oh. Um, they're, they're in their offices and, uh, and that's where, you, you know, someone can get eye tracked.
2: And the website is archaeology.com. O-C-U-L-O-G-I-C-A.com. Correct. Yes, obviously. Before I was going to say that that's it now, but uh, before I, I got the uh, the your your bio your profile, there's a long list of these of the, you're the chair of several neurosurgery groups, so academy associations, and, and groups. So, is there any fewer that you were particularly? One we think I should note that are particularly well, important. Well, I, I, yeah. I know yes. But one, yeah. of
3: the, one of the organizations that I will highlight is one that I've recently started working with and I've, I've joined the Permanent Council of, and that is the uh, G4 Alliance. Okay. And the reason that I'm highlighting them is that they believe in um, advocating for care for the neglected patient. Um, and by neglected patient, they mean people who don't have access to care. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. I mm-hmm. feel that You know, healthcare should be available to everybody. It should be independent of your employment and whether or not, uh, you know, you have, you know, neurologic problems, none of that should impact whether or not you can access care because, you know, people who already have problems need more care than people who don't have problems. So, you know, I don't think that pre-existing conditions should preclude, uh, you know, access to further medical care. So, you know, that, that's one of the organizations that, I'll, that I'm part of that I, I will highlight. Um, another one that I, I recently served as chair of the board for is uh, called Think First, and they're a, an injury prevention foundation. Um, they advocate for things like helmets and, um, you know, sort of uh, paying attention to, you know, how deep the water is before you dive, yeah. yeah. um, you know, like things like things that help with injury prevention. So distracted driving, um, they, have, they have a series of programs that basically span the lifespan. So it starts with babies and inflicted injury, goes all the way to seniors and falls, um, you know, because falls are a huge cause of brain injury in the elderly. And essentially they have programs at every single level that help reduce brain injury. And I think that uh, you know, as more awareness of the problem grows, and people realize, hey, falls are a a very common cause of brain injury, hopefully people will take measures to prevent falls. So, you know, things that people can do to prevent falls, you know, for example, in the ice, you wear, um, you can put like, they're called crampons or react tracks. Um, You know, you can put devices on your shoes so you don't slip. Um, You can exercise your iliopsoas quads hamstrings so you don't fall. I guess Uh, you're
2: you're messed up. You know, you ice lawyer water with this
3: there are measures you can take. So I'm, I'm very involved in advocacy for um, brain injured people. And, you know, I think that I'm, I'm proud of that work and I'm, I'm happy to continue to try and amplify the voices of people in that, those fields.
2: Oh, Great. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking about your new technology and this hopefully spread to whoever, whoever needs it, no matter what their situation is like is, but whoever, whoever can, can get access to it and uh so again thank you very much and uh
1: thank and you. to
2: find out more just you go archaeology.com to Oculogia, to
1: correct Oculogica. Oculogica. page,
2: Oculogica. is where the best best reach you best reach yes. okay and uh end also on your own twitter yes at archaeologia. is it
3: no yes at Archaeologica, correct
2: and other i think facebook and, and facebook and linkedin i saw uh, as well but yes. uh, and that's just, I, 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 I thought she was by, I assume. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Search it there. But, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sanadani.
3: Yeah, you're uh, welcome. Thank you very much.
2: The music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,